Hey, this had Oscar Buzz listeners. This is Joe and also Chris. Hey, Chris. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hello. How are you? Um, before we start today's episode, we just wanted to mention up at the top that there are some audio difficulties this week. We had a little bit of equipment failure on one of our ends and one of the audio tracks sort of was a dud. So we had to use the Skype call that we're on and it is not the not up to the standards. We know we're not the um, the industry standard when it comes to audio we are a humble diy podcast about oscars uh, the joys all. of being an independent podcast the joys of being an independent podcast that's exactly right we are the darren aronofsky's pie of um podcasts that you listen to but we are um, the sink that is not braced yet <laughs> indeed um so yeah just so you know we know there was nothing that was to be done about it we still think this is a uh highly listenable and enjoyable podcast we have a great guest we have a great movie that we're talking about and sometimes the the you know there's a little bit of a scratchiness to the the audio and hopefully we'll have gotten it as leveled out as humanly possible for you and yeah so it's just we appreciate your patience and your listenership we do we appreciate your patience we know that you know you guys are cool we you know you get it um but yeah, so just so you know, it's it's this was a uh, hopefully a one-time thing. Hopefully this, this kind of thing doesn't happen again. And thank you. Keep listening. Uh-oh, wrong house. No, the right house. I didn't get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. They don't have any friends. It makes me feel bad for them. Who is that and doesn't have any friends? Sai. The photo guy at the one hour place? We really don't know that much about him, you know? I mean, he might even have a lot of friends. He probably has a girlfriend and, and a mommy and a daddy who love him. I don't think he does. I've been doing mini lab work for over 20 years now. I consider it an important job. Hi, Mrs. Yorkin. Can I get that address again? Yes, it's 326. 326 Serrano Terrace. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast able to find enough hair bleach to last a near decade while in Tibet. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations. But for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with um, uh, the family that I'm obsessed with, except just one person, <laughs> Joe Reed. <laughs> the person whose house you poop in when I'm not around? Yeah. Um... The person who I give free disposable cameras to. <laughs> No, Lord knows how I need disposable cameras. Although, God, I should talk to you about my fucking odyssey trying to get old 35mm film developed yesterday. I thought that that was a little bit of a bit, knowing what movie we were talking about when I saw those tweets. Where did you find old film sitting around in your this movie definitely, watching this movie the other night definitely reminded me that I have these around, but I've had these around for a while. Um, they've sort of in, been in my, like, you know how you have, like, a tchotchke, not a, like a, 
like a random stuff box that sort of like comes with you when you move and you just sort of like leave it as is and it's like old stationery and like office sure. supplies and maybe like you know buttons or magnets or whatever and like whatever the hell else so in this has been these three rolls of 35 millimeter film that are like god knows how old could be as far back as college could be you know somebody like a you know a family event could be like who who genuinely knows what are on these three it rolls could of be your vacation with your mistress <laughs> yes right exactly but so I've hold, held on to them for all these years because I'm like, one of these days I'm going to get them developed. And then I'm just like, one of these days I should get them developed. I'm in New York City, for God's sake. Somebody should be able to do this. And so I Googled it, and Google is like, your CVS should be able to do it. Like, they have a photo lab, blah, blah, blah. Like, go to your local CVS. I was like, okay. And I also wanted to go to CVS to get a flu shot. So I was like, two for one, great. And this was all before I was going to go see Rise of Skywalker. So I was like, I'll make a like, I'll make a day of it. But also, like, I'm on a you know schedule. So I get to CVS. I go through like the horribly like involved process of checking in at the fucking kiosk to get my flu shot. And at the very end of this like ten minute process, they're like, your wait will be sixty four minutes. <laughs> I was like, fuck you, no, it won't. So I'm on my way out the the store. I stop by the photo counter takes forever for somebody to like come to the photo counter because like it's a ghost town there's like tumbleweeds like floating through <laughs> the whole photo lab and finally i'm just like i found these little and i like show them the canister and they're like we don't do that oh great so now i've got to figure out somewhere else to get them like stay tuned the saga continues we'll send you in a time machine because if Thank there you. was ever a time machine for how like every day technology that affects everyday life of like normal people if there's ever been a time capsule movie yeah that makes you feel that so succinctly for how we've changed in the past 20 years it was maybe this movie and that was maybe the most fascinating thing about watching it um however before we get into the movie we should say we have a guest here with us yeah we do as i rambled on and on about my dumb life uh, we are very excited hey. to welcome our oh. guest uh, oh, okay. movie reporter for huffington post it's matt jacobs hey, oh. welcome matt Oh, thank you for having me. We're very happy thank to have you Thank you so here. much for joining us. Um, so you chose for us One Hour Photo. I did. Guilty. <laughs> Before we get into the movie, whenever we have a guest, we like to talk a little bit about why you chose the movie, and we like to go into like your background with Oscar. So let's at least just like start with the movie. What kind of jumped out at you to cover One Hour Photo with us? Well, you guys were kind enough to send me a list of kind of running titles that you have in works in the works for the podcast. And there were a couple that jumped out at me, but one hour photo in particular, it's a movie that I haven't seen since it first came out, at least not in full. And it's sort of it sort of ties in with my kind of Oscar origin story because it was around the period when I was first really kind of coming to understand like what the Oscars entailed kind of behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. Um, but it also, like, as a movie independent of the Oscars, hits a few buttons for me. I mean, the kind of, like, character-driven psychodrama is, like, my movie kink in general as far as genres go. Yeah. And another movie kink of mine is actors who get stuck doing one thing for years on end and then make this really kind of pivotal, like, pivot in their um, careers and kind of go with this like off the wall sort of like bonkers performance 
um, out of the blue. And very excited to talk about that, particularly yeah. with this performer, because it's yeah. a very it's hard like, pivot. I, that I, like it's same thing like t- that you guys are saying. Like I anticipated that this would be a movie that was very much like of its time in terms of the technology and the way that it's tackling like something that doesn't really, as Joe discovered, exist anymore, but yet still touches on ideas of like consumerism and surveillance that are just as resonant today. Yeah. It's, I don't know, I think it didn't really hit me until I was watching the movie and I looked at the actual timeline of Robin Williams' career post his Oscar win of these like really hated movies for a few years. And then in 2002, this hard pivot to the way he was going to get Gravitas back as an actor was to play quietly crazy, scary people and Mm -hmm. then also Death to Smoochie. <laughs> well, I also love, this wasn't just something that sort of like fell in his lap and he said okay I'll take a left swing this was something that he went out and actively sought I mean in all the interviews he gives around this period um, he's saying like everybody in, in the industry knew that I was looking for something dark and he was like specifically asking her his agents to send him scripts like these, which I think is a little, usually when actors make these pivots, they're like, oh no, it just is what it is. And and here's the next move for me. But he was just full on, yeah. no, like I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things I always think of with Robin Williams, because he, this, this pivot was so recognizable, like even if you weren't like covering movies for a living, like it's so... It was so blatant that, like, oh, Insomnia and Death to Smoochie and One Hour Photo all got enough publicity around the same time that it was, you know, very clear what was going on. I don't feel like this was the first time that he was playing that very stoic psychopath role that became, like, one of his benchmarks in his career. Right. Well, he definitely was inching in in not quite as pointedly dark a direction, but he definitely peppers throughout his career, these movies that inch toward these kind of, I mean, they're safe mm-hmm. dramas, but but he, it's not that this was completely uncharted territory for him. So he had something of a, of, of a precedent for it. The difference was that uh, when he did it before, it was always very kind of, it, it was safe. It was very like, he played these like professors and teachers and doctors. And like, it was the kind of movies that like, you know, it's like what high school English class didn't watch Dead Poet Society, what mm-hmm. like high school psychology class didn't watch Awakenings. Like it was always very safe, but he was he was he, you could see him sort of drifting in this direction yeah and i like it feels like it's not like this was a wild swing that didn't make sense because like there's an intensity to robin williams whether it's in his stand up comedy or like some of the more like overtly emotional like maybe more saccharine movies where it's like it's such this like intense distillation of feeling mm-hmm. that like one, I just think one of the defining characteristics of him as like an actor and like perhaps like a performer auteur is this level of intensity that is like a natural pivot towards this type of psychodrama. Yeah, it, it it also almost feels like you you create a void, like you create a mirror, like a mirror image of yourself as you're crea- you're building this career full of you know these bright, expressive, often children friendly characters, and 
as you're building that, the like the void also builds in equal and opposite, and it's just like and it's just <laughs> there waiting for him to like step into whenever he wants to. Yeah, and he's incredibly thought... effective at it. Like that's the thing. Like he really, I think he knows how to use his persona, um, effectively in that way. He did. Yeah. I still sometimes speak of him in the present tense. It's sad. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the few roles that he picks around this time to drift in that direction are, are really interesting choices. This one actually was first offered to Jack Nicholson, which makes a lot of sense. And mm-hmm. Jack Nicholson turned it down because he thought it was too similar to The Shining. And I actually think Robin Williams is much more of casting than so just because the Nicholson casting would have been so on the nose. Very on the mm-hmm. nose. And less of a... I think with Nicholson, you wouldn't be as off your balance because you, you've seen it before. You've yeah. seen it in some way before. Right. But interesting that two actors who are known for very big performances were both considered for this, um, you know, very quiet loner type. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, Matt, you mentioned O2 as like being a year around the time you realized kind of the ecosystem behind the Oscars. But that was that when you started becoming like obsessed with the Oscars, paying attention to the Oscars, or was that earlier? It was a little earlier. That was the moment when it, 2002, 2003, those were kind of the years when it, everything sort of clicked for me as to like the, like, yeah, the infrastructure that exists behind the Oscars. So the, so I was an early adopter of pop culture in general as a kid. I mean, by the time I was like seven years old and everybody else was asking for like, I don't know, Game Boys or Hot Wheels whatever the hell <laughs> I was mom. Can I have ray of light and the new spice girls album? And so that's just like a natural pathway. Of course, like the Oscars are going to be on my radar, like imminently. I know you guys have talked a lot about a lot on this podcast about being kind of, uh, you know, entertainment weekly disciples and it's heyday. And, and so I had a very kind of like similar kind of, conventional, especially like, you know, closeted gay kid in the South, kind of like, you know, embracing pop culture as a preteen. And the first Oscars that I vividly remember watching would have been the ones that aired in um, 2000. So I would have been about 10 years old. And that was the year that American Beauty won. And of course, I hadn't seen the bulk of the nominees. I believe I'd seen like, I think I'd seen like, uh, Music of the Heart, which Meryl Streep was nominated for that year, and like The Matrix. And um, but very quickly, just sort of it registering that like this was like the bastion of pop culture. And in the coming years, I better see all these movies because this is a big deal. And I don't remember how I came, how specifically I came to learn what Gold Derby was, but somewhere between like 2000, 2002, I became aware that there was this intense like politicking and just in, incredible and this was you know the height of or really the beginning and into the height of like the Miramax like Weinstein era so yeah, everything sure. like, like yeah. this gigantic battlefield and so I was you know learning about all this right coming you know coming immediately after the like Saving Private Ryan Shakespeare in Love year and all this kind of stuff and and so I very quickly like you know, kind of dove into Gold Derby a little bit so that by the time that these Oscars this year that we're talking about now came around, like by the time, by the night of that Oscars in 2003, I was like so invested in the best actress category I had seen, I think all the nominees except for Unfaithful because my parents probably wouldn't have let me watch Unfaithful. Right. Um, (laughs) 
um, that I, I knew enough to know that the award was going to be either Nicole Kidman for The Hours or Renee Zellweger for Chicago, but that a contingent of kind of critics and pundits there was like a camp of people who really thought the award should go to Julianne Moore for Far From Heaven, who of course was nominated twice that year. So I I had this like bank of knowledge and like commitment to that category in particular, but the awards across the board. And that was a great year. I mean, the hours, yes. Chicago, mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings, um, you know, talk to her, so on and so forth. Um, that, uh, you know, by the time Oscar night was rolling around that I was like that invested in it. And then of course, like once you're at that level, it, it just, I think never goes away, even when you're forced to do it professionally. I'm so fascinated the, you know, at the, the idea of, and this is not necessarily you, Matt, but like you mentioned the Lord of the Rings, like how many people were sort of brought into this consciousness mm-hmm. by the fact that like these incredibly popular movies that everybody was seeing were nominated for the Oscars three years in a row. So like not only just like one year, this one movie that I like is nominated, but like this mm-hmm. entire saga that I'm invested in has a full over the course of three years, like narrative that got paid off. Like it's an, I don't know. It's, I think it's fascinating. I think O2 um, it's really interesting to like hear you say this because O2 I think is a really great education mm-hmm. into how Oscar campaigns worked, certainly of this era um, and largely because of Miramax and Harvey Weinstein and the type of politicking that they would do. Mm-hmm. Also O2 leads back to all roads lead back to the hours. They do. Usual. <laughs> but, like answer. there are several Miramax movies in several different Oscar races doing well and you could see like how the chess pieces moved around based on campaigning priorities. Like the hours is one of them. Gangs of New York, obviously Frida. Um, what were the other Miramax movies this year? I mean, that was kind of a, the fact that they had so many of the best picture nominees that year was, mm-hmm. you know, Testament in and of itself. But Chicago. Uh, yeah. I, and you sort of, I mean, not to sort of dwell on, you know, Miramax and Weinstein stuff because that always on a long enough timeline that that'll bum you out anyway. But just right. the fact that you could like see who the in-house priorities were, where like the hours was third on that ladder because they were a co-production with Paramount, and and it was they also had Scott Rudin producing it as right. well, and he became my more so like invested in that campaign than Miramax was. Right. Godzilla versus Kong, uh, Scott Rudin, <laughs> Harvey Weinstein co-producing on uh, the hours. But also the fact that like, I always thought that Chicago was a little more favored within the company than Gangs of New York because Rob Marshall probably gave them a lot fewer headaches in terms of like pushing back against their more uh, invasive note giving process than uh mm-hmm. than scorsese certainly who like that movie was this like multi-year arduous like was supposed to get released in 2001 and then had to get recut in a, like four and a half hour cut right exactly exactly it would have been interesting to see what the irishman would have turned out to be would have turned out to have been this year if scorsese really had to wrangle with a studio to get it released in a theatrical cut that like because ultimately netflix didn't care about the length of the movie for the theatrical cut so like they could give a shit but like i wonder what that version of the irishman would have ended up being it probably still would have been a three hour movie instead of a three hour and 20 minute movie 28 something it's 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 (laughs) we're splitting i'm not i'm not i'm not letting you save that movie from any from any minute of its excessive runtime anyway 
Well, and it's, it's interesting talking about sort of the Miramax kind of height and all of that, that this was a Fox Searchlight movie kind of in the at the period when Fox Searchlight was first breaking into the Oscar scene. And of course, now we think of them mm-hmm. as this Oscar, you know, mastermind studio, um, you know, 12 Years a Slave and Birdman. They've won a bunch of best pictures in this decade alone. And I wonder, had this come out a few years later, um, when they had a bit more experience under their belt in terms of pushing Oscar narratives, maybe if they could have gotten Williams, uh, you know, more momentum there. Yeah, I definitely think looking at the lineup that it is a strange, it's strange that he didn't make it in. And maybe we're thinking through like today's logic versus 20 years ago logic. Yeah. Um, but perhaps this is a good time to pivot towards the movie. Once again, as I mentioned, we are talking about One Hour Photo, written and directed by former, still works in music videos, but known at the time as like a music video wonderkin, Mark Romanek, starring Robin Williams, Connie Nielsen, Michael Vartan, Eric LaSalle, and Gary Cole. The movie premiered at Sundance, Open Limited in late August of 2002, and then went wide in September. Matt, are yes. you... Willing and ready to give a 60-second plot description of One Hour Photo. Oh, 60 minutes and 60 seconds. All right, I'm ready. (laughs) All righty. So your time for One Hour Photo starts now. All right. Well, Robin Williams, he's not a regular technician. He's a cool technician, except not really. He works at a a, uh, a sort of Walmart adjacent or or Walmart analog in suburban America. He is a photo technician at the um, one hour photo stand and he is lonely. He has nobody in his life. He is depressed and has a, um, a troubled past and takes a particularly keen uh, liking, to say the least. 30 seconds. One family in particular, they are the Yorkin family. Um, Every time they bring in photos, he makes a copy for himself and hangs them on his wall. He has a shrine to them and discovers that amid their own domestic tedium, um, that the man in question, played by Michael Bertan, is having an affair and he takes a vigilante status and seeks to um, um, punish the man for his, his sins. And that's time. Nice job. Well done. Yeah. I mean, I love that you started it off by saying 60 minutes and 60 seconds because <laughs> I, rewatching this movie, I was shocked at how much it is a very tight 90. Yeah. Like, oh. this is a very <laughs> lean movie with not a whole lot of plot. It is very focused on what it's doing, which, like, for a semi debut for Mark Romanek, because he had, like, whenever you talk about a movie that doesn't exist, like, his debut movie, which, what's it called? Uh, I have it here in the notes. It's called Static, was in the 80s. Like, that movie was off the face of the earth by the time One Hour Photo came yeah, out. Yeah, it was. this but, might as like, well have been his debut for all in terms of what it meant for his career. This was the jumping off from music videos for him more than anything. All of the ambition in this movie lies probably in its tone, whereas everything else, it keeps the narrative incredibly slight and like small and very focused on just these small set of terms in a way that is, I found kind of shocking for this type of thriller compared to what we might see today, where it has to become so much more elaborate and have like this movie has a few twists towards the end, but like. 
you'd expect huge twists or huge acts of violence that never come in this movie. I think part of it is that they reveal the photo wall pretty early in the mm-hmm. movie. So it's not a, and I, and, and rightly so, because I think you're not going to be able to sell this movie without revealing that he's crazy or that he's sort of like obsessed with them. So there's no use in like saving that reveal for any later in the movie than you do. Um, and I actually feel like that was a really effective sort of like, I mean, it, it, it comes across almost like campy a little bit, but like, I think it gives you this sense of what, the mood of the movie is where it's not going to be quite so like um almost like it's not going to be respectable it's not going to be like stayed and sort of like neat and tidy it's just going to be like oh right he's got this like wild insane you know photo wall while he's watching that was the other thing is while he's watching that episode of the simpsons which i thought was just like that's maybe you know the you know take one thing off before you leave the house and it's just like maybe he doesn't have to be watching the simpsons episode based on cape fear while we're panning out to this photo wall yeah another movie uh, you know we're in the season of joker another movie that wears its like scorsese influences on its sleeve yeah um, i mean Mark Romanek talked about this being like a sort of taxi driver type movie. And I see a lot of similarities to like King of Comedy in terms of like. Yeah. And um, Kate Fear, of course. Um, You know, I think the photo wall reveal, I agree that it is um, needed and effective. What I I was shocked by in um, revisiting the movie was that the interrogation or the, the, you know, beginning of the interrogation. It frames it. Yeah. Yes. It's positioned right at the start of the movie. And I get that the movie wants you to sort of know who this person is right from the jump. But I actually think that by the time you wrap back around to that at the end, specifically the whole sequence through the hotel when Robin Williams is um, kind of, you know, stalking down um, Will Yorkin, the Michael Vartan character and his his mistress, um, that it really sucks the tension out of it because we already know that he's going to go down for these crimes. There's no... Mm way to to suspend the the, the belief right. that he's to um escape it feels like I the surprise it, is meant to be that he doesn't kill anyone that all of a sudden yeah you expect like it sets be- up this expectation right. that it subverts like i've seen this movie before and even still i was like is he gonna find like michael vartan's head in that bag like what's going you know what i mean it was just like oh right he doesn't end up actually killing anybody he only takes the photos and but although he's I, still what he does do could be equated to a sexual assault of course, though, which of is course. one of the things about this movie that it's like but he didn't kill them right it's like uh, he just sexually aggressed them yeah i don't right. think he's you know going anywhere good after that interrogation but yeah yeah, actually, the, the original cut of, or a early cut of this movie actually didn't have the interrogation at the end. Or, sorry, at the beginning. Um, uh, Mark Remedick apparently showed an early cut of this to Francis Ford Coppola, who told him that he should, it was more of like a kind of somber character study at the time, I guess, and, and Coppola said that he should make it more of a thriller. Mm-hmm. And so that he inserted the little, you know, lead up to the interrogation at the beginning of the movie. That's interesting. I, I uh, looking up well, this Francis Ford Coppola for this. Yeah, right. Well, I also like the idea that like Francis Ford Coppola, king of the 
of the character study of the like you know thriller as character study which he did with all the godfather movies and he's like no mm-hmm. you make years a thriller like why don't you you do that <laughs> um but uh, so this movie was produced by christine vachon who is sort of famously like todd haynes's producer and she's done all mm-hmm. these sort of um amazing things killer films is her uh is her sort of production company. And uh, she wrote a book a few years ago called A Killer Life. And she mentions, she talks about one hour photo a lot. And I don't know whether that was like proximity to when she was writing the book, but it feels like that was like a a significant sort of moment in her career. So they talk a lot about trying to get the tone of it right. Apparently it like tested horribly in front of focus mm-hmm. groups that they like really kind of freaked out because the um the groups hated it and they were trying to sort of figure out whether is it the score is it the you know they obviously those changes with moving the interrogation around were um and just the fact that like working with Mark Romanek who was used to having these like giant music video budgets where he was getting like seven million dollars to make a three minute film and they're like yeah you're getting like not very much to make you know now this like 90 minute film and ultimately it's a success story which is probably why she mentions it a lot in her book because it ends up for its budget like making a good amount of money it has this like really Mm -hmm. great sundance premiere at the 2002 sundance film festival where it screens i want to say out of competition i can't remember don't quote me on that but i like, think it was actually in competition yeah we talked about this year's sundance in our tadpole episode yes. but like this is a really fascinating sundance year it is it's really so like it uh yeah I, we definitely did talk about this so i don't i won't linger on it but like this was the year that like better luck tomorrow screened at sundance and roger ebert had that like argument with the person in the audience who was asking for respectability politics in the film um mm-hmm. Other movies this year were Secretary, Tadpole, as we mentioned, which won the Audience Award, I'm pretty sure. Um, uh, directing. Right, Directing Award. Um, Real Women Have Curves, Narc, Love, Liza, the um, Philip Seymour Hoffman movie that was written by his brother. And then the winner, which I always think is so interesting because it's like it's a movie that like I never think of, which is Rebecca Miller's Personal Velocity, which was the sort of three stories in one kind of movie with Jennifer Jason Lee and Parker Posey and Feruza Balk, where they're all just sort of like women trying to self-actualize and like break out from under their circumstances. And anyway, it's really interesting that like out of all of that, one hour photo really kind of becomes the the it, it wouldn't surprise me if that ended up making more money than any of the other films in competition that year because it felt like that was the closest agree, the closest any of those movie came to like a mainstream movie and that like it was advertised on television while you know people you know were watching i guess real women have curves because it made it to hbo as well like that those would have been the two like mainstream successes yeah, I mean, like uh, Matt mentioned earlier, this is a Fox Searchlight movie, and this is still in like the preamble to Fox Searchlight becoming the big Oscar story, like which started uh, becoming a big Oscar major player that started with the Full Monty, um, but they weren't quite there yet to like the Juno level or the Black Swan level. Right, totally. Yeah. But like, yeah, I do think. I don't know. I mean, this movie, to me, looking at it 20 years on, 
I don't want it to be like I'm saying, you know, movies get better or something, but like I could see how in O2 this would maybe be enough <laughs> storytelling wise, but like it feels a little anemic now. Like yeah. it's I missing some that zhuzh, back then too, or it's honestly. a little undercooked. Yeah. It's but like very- I remember people being freaked out. Yeah, the story that you get with this is very much the story that you get with this. And to the point where we get the, you know, an entire kind of psychological prognosis, like spelled out in like a teary monologue at at the end. By the time that explains everything, because we have no other like background to go off of. We never really learn why he obsesses over this family when he probably processes photos constantly for the same families all the time. Yeah. You've seen Michael Vartan and Connie Nielsen. You know why. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Connie Nielsen. She is wardrobed and her hair is styled so insanely in this movie. <laughs> At one point, she wears like a fitted leather full length trench coat that has a shearling collar. And I'm positive this movie takes place in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> she just stopped in from Themyscira, so like she knows exactly where, uh, you know, she's she's stopping in for photos to bring back to her daughter Diana, and everything is. She shops at fun. the mall with those like little uh, pigtail spiky bun things that were really yes, popular. They were the very popular. I blame it on like yeah. Sixpence and on the Richer or something like that. Like I feel like it was one of those little like cute bands or like um um who was Love Fool. Who was the love? Uh, that is the cardigan. The cardigans, cardigan. right? <laughs> like somebody, or even like Bjork, I guess, like was also popularizing. She's like that an exceptional mother who also moonlights as a model for advertisements for Claire's. <laughs> <laughs> and reads Deepak Chopra. Yes, also He's that. There's that element Chopra too. Gets her to the supermarket and then gets very excited to see another person also reading <laughs> Deepak Chopra. <laughs> <laughs> And she's married to Michael Vartan, who has an unfortunate haircut throughout the entirety yeah. of this movie, and he never... He's got early 2000s butt hair. He's got early yes. 2000s butt hair. And he does... I feel like... And Michael Vartan, talk about two sort of, like, careers that, that never were. I mean, like, two supporting players who just never kind of got their day in the sun, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think... Yeah, because Mike... Connie Nielsen, she... Uh, I believe Germany or Denmark. She, I think it's Denmark, but yeah, she's a very like substantial actress overseas. But here <laughs> in the states, she had that large supporting role in Gladiator. Yeah, and right. Like, this was the payoff of that. Yeah, and the Best Picture. Yeah, this winner, is sort of what she cashed in. Yeah, that she's like, yeah. thir- if not third build, she is the third lead of that movie i hope she's making some decent money for wonder woman that's what i'm hoping that like yes i was very happy to see her in wonder woman um but it's interesting with uh with vartan because alias had just premiered the fall before this so like if this is the sundance premieres in january like he was had just premiered this the september before that in alias and so I know he had been in other things. He had been in Never Been Kissed and, like, some certain other things. But, like, Alias was the big introduction to me for Michael Vartan. And it was quite the moment. And he's, like, it's so night and day between these two roles where it's just, like, Alias, he's sort of, like, 
meek and not an asshole and has a good haircut and like wears suits and this guy is just like dickhead husband extraordinaire in this well in the next movie he makes he goes a three-year gap after one hour photo the next movie he makes is monster-in-law he gets to be jennifer lopez yes Wow. Uh, of all the elements of Monster-in-Law that I, like, secretly love, and I do kind of secretly love a lot about Monster-in-Law, I never think of Michael Vartan, even though he's perfectly cute I, in that movie. Right, 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 exactly. The career that never was. Is it Adam Scott that plays her gay friend in that movie? Yeah. Yes, Wild. that's right. Wow. Yeah. Let's all reappreciate Let's take this I cultural mean, moment for Jennifer Lopez. I Monster-in-Law for the men, so. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> It's J Lo, uh, J Lo and Fonda with a with a side dish of Wanda Sykes oh, is why you're watching. Wanda. Yeah, yeah. Wanda's so funny. Yeah. Elaine Church too. She she pops up at one. Point. That's right, because J Lo has that. If you there's a clip online somewhere of J Lo, um, ex, like describing. Elaine Stritch sort of like coming on into that scene and like ripping a strip off of Jane Fonda's character and. Enter Elaine Stritch. Brilliant. Brilliant genius. I think I still recite the line she says, you used to drink wine from a box. And you drank red wine from a box. (laughs) It's one of my favorite things. I don't know. She was sort of delighted by what Stritch could do with like a line reading, which as you should be, because that's amazing. Sure. Of Stritchy. Yeah. We should talk about the era... Of Robin Williams, we post Oscar win, up to one hour photo, mm-hmm. because this is a string of some of them were financially successful. We um, much of our pop pop culture shame is that we made Patch Adams into a very large hit movie. Yeah, but he had a stretch of movies that was What Dreams May Come, which like has its fans and has its Oscar nomination for visual effects, but was a big bomb and got bad reviews. Patch Adams. Bicentennial Man also has its Oscar nomination, but people hated that movie. It has the wrong Oscar nomination. Joe and I will agree about what the right Oscar nomination is. And then also, it should have been Song for Celine Dion's Song. Wait, what song is from that movie? Joseph, I'll let you take this. It's called When You Look at Me, and it's very good, and it's very Celine, and she has a music video where she's like styled like a robot. You should go and check it out. And it was used in wow, So You Think You Can Dance Season 3. When okay. Neil and Lauren... No, wait. Not Neil and Lauren. Danny and Lauren danced to it on So You Think You Can Dance Season 3. Choreographed wow. by Mia Michaels. And it was great. That's what I will say. <laughs> it Although, would make for a very creepy original song for one hour photo if like Trent Reznor had done it. <laughs> yeah, Reznor was, I guess, supposed to do this, the score for this. And then didn't. 
Right? I think he made, I thought he did. I think he did one, and and Mark Romanek said, "Nah, I'm not going to use this." Yeah. yeah, you'll never be a film sc- film score composer, Trent Reznor. That'll never happen. <laughs> yeah, right. But the other Robin Williams movie in this period is Jacob the Liar, which is like the right. real like Earth's crust rock bottom of this period of movies in terms of critical reception, box office reception. Wasn't that just and, the year after Life is Beautiful? It's it's Life is Beautiful light, for sure. Yeah. It's like, how do you do that so soon after Life is Beautiful, man? Like, But I don't think it's Life is Beautiful, but I don't think this has a comedic bent to it, too. But, so it's like... It, but the ahead. fact that it's Robin Williams makes you sort of like yeah. file it away just, in that little cabinet anyway, right? Or that little mental cabinet anyway. I just don't understand what it was about his Oscar win that made him pivot really hard into, like, this type of emotionally manipulative, weepy brand. Right. And then he takes off a solid three years pass between Bicentennial Man and the next film that he appears in, because he's a voice in AI. He's the voice of Dr. No in AI, which actually I really, really like that scene. And I like that scene especially because you can really tell it's Robin Williams' voice. Um, But between Bicentennial Man and One Hour Photo, it's actually probably calendar-wise, it's like two and a half years. But anyway, since he makes another movie, and then, then when he does come back, it's this string of three dark roles in 2002. And... Yeah. I'm... I... I don't know. I don't know what it was, whether it was just sort of like an active, like, power down to, like, refocus things. I don't think he, like, was on a television show or anything like that in that interim. I don't know. I mean, like, it just makes you wonder in, like, what is appealing to a performer at the time. And, of course, Robin Williams is a very, like, tragic figure for most of us. And, like, it still is a very, like, painful death to think about and talk about. But, like, this string of roles after Goodwill Hunting feels like uh, they're all, like, combined by a thing of, like, martyrdom or, like, uh, you know, passive victimhood, maybe. Yeah. Um, that is really, really fascinating in how they kind of speak to each other and are also bad. I like What Dreams May Come, but I probably need to rewatch it to stand by that. I remember <laughs> watching it a lot because it was on... Um... I think I've mentioned this before. My uh, my college that I went to had this like closed circuit channel where they just like played their DVD collection and just sort <laughs> That's of like awesome. they like programmed their own movie channel essentially. And every month it would change. And I remember the one month it was just like they showed what dreams may come so many times. And so I watched like bits and pieces of it a lot. And I just my only real memory of it beyond it being like kind of sad because it's like about mm-hmm. a mom and a dad who die. Um, mm-hmm. Or wait, it's like, I don't know, one dies and the other dies. I can't remember. He goes to hell to save her because she kills herself, right. I think. Something like that. But, but all, all I really remember is people like... are like incredibly painterly. Yeah, and, like, I remember a lot of scenes of people of stepping into like puddles of muck that turn out to be like paint. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like he's like walking through this like pastoral setting and he steps into like, you know... A, a mud pit of, you know, red and blue swirl or whatever. And it's just like, okay. Mm-hmm. For some reason, What Dreams May Come was a go-to movie for, like, substitute teachers to put on when I was... No <laughs> way! So, like, I've seen it in short, like, 50-minute spurts. I mean, I know I've seen it start to finish at some point, but I've seen it, like, 
in 50 minute spurts, like so many times throughout my life. Like, and, and, and similar, like I have such kind of fleeting memories of it. Like I, the most vivid, like I remember when they like go to hell and it's like dark and, and you know, and it's like, uh, this was the movie we were watching in, in like a rainy day in high school. That's so funny. <laughs> that would be a fascinating thing is to just like get people to talk about the, the videos that they watched in high school most yeah. often, or just like, even just like the movies they saw for the first time, while like sitting in a classroom, like that's how I saw Schindler's on List a TV for the first time. that was wheeled into the room. Yep, exactly yeah. on a cart. Yep, Schindler's List. Was that a rainy day, or was that like we're gonna watch a movie about history? No, that was a movie. I think I don't even think it was history. I think that was in our religion class because I went to a Catholic high school. Um, okay. So I think they showed that in religion class, um, but it was um, almost certainly the first time I'd ever seen Schindler's List because it was. I went to high school 94 to 98, so it was pretty new then. Um, and I wasn't, like, going out of my way at 13 to go, like, to a theater to watch Schindler's List, probably. So, uh, yeah, that would have been the first time. Also, the Mel Gibson Hamlet I watched in a mm. classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the Hamlet we watched. And The Great Gatsby, which I still don't love. Um, and the the Obviously, the original, not the uh, DiCaprio. God, what if I was young enough to have seen the DiCaprio Great, Great Gatsby and you are. Classroom. You're canonically young. I'm canonically young. <laughs> Thank you. Right before this, Robin Williams did the Kenneth Branagh Hamlet. Yes, which I still ah. have never seen because it's like dauntingly long, oh, but oh. I, I would like yeah. to. Yeah, mm-hmm. four and a half hours. One of these weekends, I'm just going to like take the whole weekend and see uh, Henry V and Hamlet, and that'll be my weekend. Yeah. Do we kind of forget that Robin Williams actually had an overdue narrative when he won for Goodwill Hunting? Oh, yeah. Because for so some reason, I kind of did. And then when I was researching for this episode, I was like, no, that's wrong, because he had three other nominations leading up to this. And yeah. maybe was never the closest to win except for The Fisher King. But it's also the thing where he was nominated three times in lead and finally won in supporting. Yep. Yeah, he had – it was one of those things where he also had been um, a host of the Oscar back when they would do, like, two or three people would host. And, like, mm-hmm. he's the only one of the comic relief trio, him and Whoopi and, and Crystal, to never host on his own. But they've all three hosted the Academy Awards. So, like, he was definitely, like, part of the family, even irrespective of the nominations. But also, then you're right, three nominations. He was uh, Good Morning Vietnam, 1987 – uh, Fisher King in 91, and between that was Dead Poets Society mm-hmm. in 89. And so never never quite the favorite to win, but he wasn't the favorite to win when he won for Goodwill Hunting either. I feel like there, there was a lot of momentum behind Burt Reynolds that year. And yeah, Burt Reynolds won the Globe. And Williams won the SAG, right? Uh, I'm going to look that up. Or like maybe Anthony Hopkins. I remember that being like an odd year where like there was... He did win the SAG. Who did? Robin he did. did. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, but it was definitely not a sure thing. So I feel like his sort of sense of the prize, uh, surprise in the moment. Although if you were watching, it's one of those things where you don't quite know where the buzz is for sure until the ceremony starts. I remember feeling that way about the Shakespeare in Love year, where like th- going into that year, Saving Private Ryan was the favorite. Even going into that night, they were like, it's going to be close, but it's going to be, you know, probably Saving Private Ryan. And then the ceremony starts. And just, like, from, like, the the way that, like, 
the host is talking about what movies were big this year, and then the early awards start, and it's just like every time you hear that piece of score from Shakespeare in Love play another winner to the stage, you're just like, <laughs> how was this narrative anything but Shakespeare in Love is going to dominate this? Because yeah. it was like the thing, and I feel like you felt that way watching the 97 Oscars, which was obviously Titanic's year, but everything that wasn't about Titanic was about Ben Affleck was about and Matt Good Damon Will Hunting. and Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, 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 totally. Well, such a, that was such a strong supporting actor category, too. Robert Forster for Jackie Brown. I would know. Have been mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't want to live in a world where Robin Williams never got an Oscar, but I, I would probably throw my vote behind Robert Forster. Forster's so great in that movie. It's so... Yeah. That's a great-ass movie. Uh, and now that he's passed, watching that movie feels even, like, um, a little more melancholy. And his character is sort of, like, a little sad anyway. Um, I don't know. I love it. I love that movie. I love that character. Yeah, I do wonder, though, had he not won for Goodwill Hunting, Robin Williams would, what would the rest of his Oscar fate have been, given he had insomnia? I know Christopher Nolan wasn't, like, the thing then that he is now, but... Um, in terms of like instant Oscar contention, but um, you he know, wasn't. Wouldn't... But Memento got something, right? Yeah. Memento got a screenplay did nomination. Screenplay? Yeah. Oh, uh, so yes, it did. He was a little bit on their radar. I still feel like it's crazy to me that Robin Williams doesn't get nominated for Insomnia because yeah. it's it a, a supporting great performance. It would have been in supporting, and it was. It was him doing the against type thing as well as he ever did it. I feel like that was. I think like, it's a more successful performance doing what it's doing than one hour photo. Yes, I absolutely agree. Um, but Insomnia was so far removed from Oscar at that time, and partly because it was a summer release. And I don't think that Warner Brothers was as invested in Christopher Nolan yet, right? As they certainly are now. Um. But yeah, it feels that's like a crazy I'm, movie that was so removed because, like, that's a movie that you watch it now and it's fully believable that, oh, this could have five or six Oscar nominations attached to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And you wonder if he I, hadn't won for Goodwill Hunting, maybe then that, not, that Oscar possibility becomes much more gettable and then the tr- strategy changes. And then mm-hmm. I could see a year where Williams gets nominated for Insomnia, hasn't won yet, has a whole lot of narrative, and that just sort of takes over from what Chris Cooper was doing that year. So, like, Cooper becomes maybe, like, the critic's choice, and Williams sort of steamrolls over. like, industry choice. Yeah. See, here's the thing. I think between these two movies, One Hour Photo was the one that was closer to being an Oscar nominee, but I think there's a certain level of they cancel each other out even if insomnia really wasn't in the conversation but also i think in this best actor lineup and this year if the narrative is this actor has been has gone off the rails a little bit and is now back into the fold i think that narrative is appreciated for nicholas cage and not for robin williams yeah because there is a little bit of a respectability politics there because like you can wonder if one hour photo is maybe considered more of a horror movie for people. And like that already is a ding against Oscar consideration. Right. Which is silly, but it is a thing, especially in this era. 
But I think in terms of we're so happy this person is back to doing serious things, I think Nicolas Cage got that consideration. Well, and you mentioned the horror thing, which I think is definitely true. I, I uh, Going back to that Christine Vachon book when she talked about trying to sell the movie and she's she even admitted she's like i think we sold it more of a as more of a horror movie than it was which mm-hmm. i think then got certain audiences you know disappointed in it where this wasn't the movie we thought we were going to get it's like it's too much of a character study for people who wanted horror and ultimately i think the movie sort of settles into this weird middle ground which doesn't help it yeah, but, but 2002 best I, actors tough. 2002 were like I still kind of feel bad for Richard Gere for everybody convincing him he was about to get his first ever Oscar nomination, and then it didn't happen, and then it just like has not happened. You know what I mean? Like it's that was his. I think moment it was probably time. a mistake to push him for for lead. Yeah, lead actor. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. It's because they wanted all four categories and they didn't get it. Yep. Meanwhile, the nomination that Miramax did get is Michael Caine for The Quiet American. That was the other Miramax one. You were asking what was the other Miramax one. You're right. It was The Quiet American. Yeah. Yeah, And like how – okay, show of hands, uh, even though we can't see each other, which of us have seen The Quiet American? Not I. Not Not I. I. Yeah. (laughs) A movie Um, that really withstood the test of time. Yes. (laughs) I think that's the only acting nomination that year that I have. People saying that there were problematic things about it or that it wasn't very good. But, like, I remember him getting respect for that performance. It was, this was just like the era of Michael Caine was so, like, easily respected, like, kind of, I don't know. Male actors don't get it to the level that, like, Judy Dench got for like a philomania right of like this we're just gonna nominate this person a whole bunch because that's they are it's hot within the industry right now yeah i really to take this off on a slight different direction i love the top 10 era of best picture so much and i always talk about how i think it's better i think we see more attention to more good movies with the with the top ten, whatever, mm-hmm. up to top ten in place. And I've talked about how I think it opens up the entire Oscar race to allow for more conversation for different types of movies. It does, but I think one thing it doesn't do well is allow for performances from movies that are not going to sniff the Best Picture contention to like rise up. I think it ultimately mm-hmm. maybe doesn't serve... A Michael Caine in The Quiet American as wouldn't have served uh, something like that as well. I think you see it wouldn't that. have served uh, Robin Williams in One Hour Photo, right? And I think you see that a little bit this year in terms of how hard it's been to get Alfre Woodard into the conversation for Clemency, or how we're still kind of like we don't know how it's going to go with Lupita in Us. Or we for... should say we're recording this the day before the Oscar nomination. Yes, we are. That's true. By the time you hear this, we'll you know the answers will be obvious. We will hopefully have nominations for both of those actresses. Yeah, yeah. A big knock. A big knock on wood. Yes. A big knock on wood. My thing. My thing with Best Actress as we're because all I've been asked for the last two days is like who's going to be the big surprise on Monday, and it's mm-hmm. just like a you're assuming there's going to be a big surprise on Monday, and sometimes there just isn't. Um, but the other thing is, it's made me feel like I've all I've been running through are these like unlikely scenarios in my head that like now I'm setting myself up for so much disappointment to the point where like I've started to talk myself into the idea that oh all it's going to take is either Scarlett Johansson or Charlize Theron to be like shockingly left off of Best Actress and then Best Actress could be 
a majority minority character uh, category for like the first time ever, which would be amazing. It does really feel yeah. like there's a potential to have um, 2016 repeated, um, where you Go have on. all of these different people and like Amy Adams falls off, um, where it's like everybody takes that for granted that that's going to show up, and for some reason it doesn't. See, these I are the think things I talk more, myself into, and then it like, this, and then it ha- doesn't happen, and it's just like, well, yeah, obviously. I think that's more likely to adversely affect like Saoirse Ronan than oh, it will for like Scarlett Johansson. I currently don't think Saoirse is going to get nominated, and again, you're she, I'm not to this predicting future, her, so. but I am predicting like Lupita for this yeah. very reason yeah. because of passion votes, and like it is voted on preferentially. Yeah, I've held on to Lupita and 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 made peace with the social thing. I, I mean, right now my biggest fear is that the big narrative is going to be Jennifer Lopez is snubbed for Hustlers tomorrow, which I know we'll all be oh, devastated man. by. I don't think it's going to happen. I just don't see I it. I don't understand why people are saying that. Other than, but like, enough people are saying it that I, I'm I'm probably wrong there. It might. I mean, go- it's, like, it's just like once again we're going to take Jennifer Lopez for granted. The industry doubts her, kind of thing is. Mm-hmm. It's, my this assumption. is what I was doing and before the Golden Globe nomination. And people think the movie is trash because it's about strippers and they won't even watch it, which right. is dumb. That to right. me is almost more is, – is as infuriating to me as the people who were like, I'm not going to see Little Women. Where it's just like – or the people who have seen Hustlers and are just like, yeah, but that's not like an Oscar movie. You know what I mean? Just sort of like there's a lot yeah. of brushing aside of that movie. But that's what I was doing before the Golden Globe nominations came out when I was just like – they're going to fucking leave her off, aren't they? They're just going to do it. They're gonna, and it's just like it almost She's felt like... She's one of the big stories of the year, too. That's why I'm like, I don't see her being snubbed. But again, we're recording this the day before. I could be very, very, very wrong. And I mean, she got the SAG nomination, so we know she has a, yes. a, a swath of industry support. Yeah. So, yes. I mean, I think we're going to be pleased with that tomorrow. But I, I just... I keep I keep praying to the to, to Meryl that it's not going to happen. <laughs> Please, Meryl. Please send your angels, Grace and, and Mamie, down to Earth to make sure this doesn't happen. Yes. Another thing to bring it back to One Hour Photo and why I think it got left out of the conversation for Robin Williams is, like, O2 is the most, like, we complained about it today, but you want to talk about a year where, like, everything is in December? Oh, yeah. This movie, like, this movie didn't even break wide until... um. It broke wide in September, but, like, are all of these Best Picture nominees December releases? Yes. Not just, like, December, but, like, the week of Christmas? I think The Hours was the earliest release, and it was, like, second week of December. And I think Chicago was Christmas Day. Gangs of New York was Christmas Day. Um, the Pianist the, might have been even later I'm than looking that? up The Pianist because... Was that even just like a qualifying release? Let me see. Because The Pianist was incredibly late. Um, played Can. Lord of the Rings almost certainly opened whatever no, date. No, it, it. Sorry, go it ahead. It had, um, uh, yeah, a Christmas limited release. Yeah. And then Lord of the Rings always opened on like December 18th or thereabouts. It was always like, yeah. you know, like something close to that. So it's like it leaves a lot of room for this movie to be forgotten or buried in this like last rush. Whereas like this year, movies that have played for a long time and people have seen in the shortened calendar are what are still coming ahead. Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers released on December 18th, 2002. What did I fucking tell you? (laughs) Good job, buddy. And I'm going to guess the hours was the week before, but let's see how right I am. I think that was a Christmas limited release with Chicago. So? Maybe I'm yeah. thinking of the fact that it won um, 
National Board of Review that year, so I thought it had already been in like limited release, but let's see. New York premiere was December 15th, 2002, but it didn't open wide until Christmas Day. So we're both right. There we are. I wonder, too, if on a small degree, I know this movie came out before both Insomnia and One Hour Photo, I believe, but if Death to Smoochie, which was completely reviled, um, had a sort of... uh, Norbit effect, if you will, in terms of like softening the impact of like how cool it was to see Robin Williams in mm-hmm. and It certainly made it more difficult to have like feature stories that were like Robin Williams' triumphant year of villainy when it started yeah. with Death to Smoochie. Yeah, yeah and like, it probably also prevented like a comeback narrative too. Right. Because yeah. of the close adjacency. Right, right. And it sort of zaps the air out of like, look at how how clever and cunning Robin Williams career choices are now that he's like pivoting from like the flubber era. I mean, at that point, I mean, especially he was like he was like saying in interviews that like flubber was just a paycheck. And I mean, being kind of candid about like this era and then it's like, but you also have death to smoochie right there up against all of this in the same breath. I can't ignore that. My favorite thing about death to smoochie and I would love to. The thing about Danny DeVito movies is you always think they'll be le- way less unpleasant than they are, and then you watch it. And, like, even, like, because the concepts all seem, like, vaguely cartoon-friendly, where it's, like, throw Mama from the train and, like, yeah. death to Smoochie and duplex and whatnot. And it's, like, and then you watch them, and it's just, like, oh, this is all, like, pitch black, dark soul, like, really unpleasant. Everybody's, like... Everybody in these movies is going to hell. Like, it's... Even Matilda. Yes. <laughs> yeah. He was actually... Weirdly, Danny DeVito is kind of a perfect fit for Roald Dahl in a way that, like, we don't... I don't think we made enough of a thing about at the time. Was just, like, both of these people who are incredibly sort of inviting presences. You know what I mean? Like, they're you don't expect them to be as dark... It's a very like, like center Venn diagram of whimsy and utter darkness. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. We might talk about Danny DeVito more in the future because we're talking about doing War of the Roses, and that would be a really interesting one to do. Uh, anyway. We shall see. Did we notice, did we all notice uh, character actress Queen Lee Garlington as the uh, waitress? Who was friendly to Sai in the one scene? Oh, the I kind oh, of expected wow. her to be in more of the movie, so I like wrote it down. She, of course, was. Um, I remember her most from Field of Dreams as the one who gets in the argument with Amy Madigan at the town, like the PTA meeting, where they're talking about burning the books, and <laughs> Amy Madigan's like, "You want to go outside?" I experienced the '60s. No, I think you had two '50s and moved right on into the '70s. Annie, look at this. Oh, yeah? Well, your husband plowed under his corn and built a baseball field. Now, there's an intelligent response. The weirdo. (laughs) Honey, it's all right. I'll be cool. At least he is not a book burner, you Nazi cow. At least I'm not married to the biggest horse's ass in three counties. All right, Beulah, do you want to step outside? Fine! And she's uh, Rose's daughter on Golden Girls. Fuck, you're right. You're totally right. 
Rico, also appearing briefly in one hour photo is Jim Rash as the like porn mm-hmm. guy customer who comes up to uh, oh, yeah. Robin store. Yeah, this movie has a lot of like one scene um people show up. Nick Searcy shows up as the guy fixing the uh the photo machine sort of unnecessarily because Robin Williams is too control freaky about it and he was in I always remember him most as Frank Bennett in Fried Green Tomatoes, but he's also been in like <laughs> a billion other things. Secrets in the sauce. And then Gary Cole is like the this yeah. was like the era where Gary Cole just kept playing his character from the office over and over and over again. It's just like office if you space. want or yes, what did I say? The office? Yeah. Me, you pulled a me. I pulled a you. <laughs> um where it's like, do you want somebody to play a bureaucratic functionary without a whole lot of personality, you call in Gary Cole and you'll be happy about it. Yeah. It's fun to see what Gary Cole's career has become because he's gotten so many good yeah. supporting roles on TV. I mean, in Veep and Good Wife and Good Fight. Um, I, I, he's he's so fun to watch in all of those. They, I think he reached the apex of the office space type character when he was the vice president on the West Wing for a few years, where essentially his like personality as the vice president was like, oh, he's the guy that the Democrat could get, the Democrats could get approved by a Republican Senate, so he couldn't be like all that impressive. So he was like this like very unimpressive veep, and it's just like, oh, okay, well then there you go. That's <laughs> that's what you get Gary Cole for. But yeah, you're yeah. right. His, his career has really... He's a, he's like very talented. He's a very talented comedic actor. Yeah. Should we talk a little bit about Mark Romanek? Yeah. Yeah, I want to cuz one of my very favorite music video directors of all time from an era where music video directors were I, I don't want to be like, you know, old man Pappy on the log, like telling the kids stories about uh, the way things used to be, but like you guys music <laughs> videos used to be so good. Music videos used to be and, like, you cared about when they premiered, and you cared about who directed them, and the Video Music Awards were, like, more than just a weird, like, concert excuse for, you know, acting out and and spectacle. It was just, like, you actually cared about who got the awards, because the, like, music videos had merit that you could argue about. And this was the era of, like, Mark Romanek and, um, and David Fincher... And Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris got their start in music videos, and but Spike Mark Romanek's videos were what's that, Matt? Spike Jones. Spike Jones. Mm-hmm. My God, how could I forget Spike Jones? Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Mark Romanek's videos were always very. You could. I always liked that you, that when directors had a style that you could like pick out, and a lot of his videos feel like they have his signature on it. The most the most Mark Romanek videos I feel like are Bedtime Story for Madonna and. Scream from uh, yeah. Michael and Janet Jackson. I feel like those are like that's the apex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You can see. I mean, that that aesthetic of the Scream video was so influential. You can see it kind of bear the fruits across like like uh, like dozens of music videos and movies around that time. I always think like TLC, No Scrubs. I'm not sure. Yeah. That, like, yep. Like it's the same visual. The Elliot videos. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and even and, leading and, up to that, like if you you like he directed Free Your Mind, the uh, the En Vogue video, yeah. Free Your Mind, which like of course he did because that was like Training Wheels Scream almost, like that was where I think a lot of that those aesthetics were were sort of born. Yeah, and the you same thing see- with Bedtime Story and sure. Closer, like the Nine Inch Nails video, Closer, like one yeah. sort of leads into the other. And uh, I mean Fiona Apple Criminal. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. Even yeah. beyond some of the more iconic ones we remember, 
he's still working with some of the like peak artists of like our lifetimes. Like he was doing a ton with um, Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. He did a bunch with Jay Z. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He also did directed. More with Janet. It's maybe his least like visually audacious video of his entire career, maybe. But he directed Macy Gray's "I Try," and like that's <laughs> he'll always have a special place in my heart for that. <laughs> also, REM "Strange Currencies." I marked that down, Chris, for you because I know you like "Strange Currencies." I love "Strange Currencies." Thank it's a great you. Video. Mm-hmm. And then you the, can the year that one hour photo came out, he directed the music video for hella good by no doubt, which is a video I don't remember, but I thought it was interesting. It's that, in like, black and white. And it's in like a sunken, su- not like a sunken, but like half buried ship or oh. submarine something <laughs> I, of all the concepts that I could have maybe envisioned for no doubts, hella good. I would not have envisioned that. And that's the beauty of Mark Romanek. <laughs> and then the year after this, he does the Hurt video for Johnny Cash, the, the yeah. Nine Inch Nails mm-hmm. cover, which is like maybe one of the last iconic like music videos of, you know, the era where you would watch music videos on TV. Yeah. Yeah. You can see some of the aesthetic of particularly the Scream video kind of, you know, drop its way into one hour photo as well, particularly like the stark white, almost sort of like 2001 A Space Odyssey-ish yeah. look the supermarket um, the scene where he gets fired and yeah, then the like shot where he yes. walks through the store and you see all the like rows of products against the like stark white counters and wall and it's just following him from the front in kind of like semi close up like yes that that you can tell i mean this isn't somebody who's stepping behind the camera for the for the first time whether he mm-hmm. yeah maybe a co-screen writer is is a different conversation, but um, but he knew what he was doing in terms of the the visual language of this movie. There are boxes yeah. of cereal in that in that tracking shot that look like the size of small children. It's like it's everything is just sort of like big and and dwarfs him and and you know it's perfectly lined up and yeah it's great. Yeah. It's interesting to uh, that's a good point, Matt, that you bring up that he needed a co-screenwriter or something. I think for his debut which joe can you remember if he did the screenplay for never let me go or not i don't believe he did but i'm gonna look that up right now while you at talk. least for his de- debut you could imagine a much better reception if he was working from somebody else's script because i do think this oh. movie's problems or the things that keep it from going to the next level are all script issues i shouldn't have yeah. needed to look that up alex garland did the adaptation oh yeah which that's why that movie, for as much as like you can see Mark Romanek's touches in it, it feels really much. It feels like an Alex Garland movie if you look forward. We'll absolutely eventually do that movie, but I think it's a vastly much better movie than this. I love Never Let Me Go. Like yeah. that's going to be a very gushy episode if we do it because I fucking love that movie. Yeah. What I don't else? know. It's interesting. Uh, the idea of like, especially. You know, directors that were coming up in the 90s, the idea of music video auteur and the ones who had success breaking out and those who didn't, because even David Fincher eventually got his success, even though his debut feature was very reviled at the time. Yeah, it's interesting. Of all those directors that I mentioned that moved into movie success, like Fincher's obviously had big uh, Oscar success, as has Spike Jones. He's an Oscar winner for... 
her. And then Jonathan and Dayton and Valerie Ferris didn't get nominated as Best Director, but Little Miss Sunshine obviously got a nomination as Best Picture. So really, mm. it's just Mark Romanek of that like elite class. Hype Williams made a few movies, but they were not successful. That's true. Hype Williams as well. We'll put him in that same in that same category. Do you mean it was just Mark Romanek who didn't kind of make it? Yeah, just sort of like of of that sort of you know elite class that I made up right there on the spot. Yeah. Um, yeah. (laughs) There's definitely more names too. Oh yeah, Harry Gray did a bunch of music videos. Michelle Gondry. Yes. Yeah. Totally. You're totally right. I don't know. That is a very interesting class of people, just to bring it back. It was it was a moment in time. <laughs> I want to dip into the AARP Movies for Grown Ups Awards for one second. <laughs> Our very favorites. Um, Robin Williams was nominated not for Best Actor. That was fairly Oscars. Um, well, Nicholson for About Schmidt and Michael Caine for Quiet American. The nominated. IMDb list is not complete, so you can tell that, like... It's just far enough back into the history of these awards that we don't have solid record of everything. Yes, but what what uh, One Hour Photo was nominated for, Robin Williams' performance, was for Best Breakaway Performance, which was what won does that by... Mean? That's, I what, that's what I bring to you guys. I think it's the performance that best spread its wings and learned how to fly. <laughs> and <laughs> did what it takes. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you brought that up. But yeah, so okay, let's try and puzzle out what they mean by best breakaway performance by looking at the other nominees. Winner was Richard Gere for Chicago. Then Christopher Walken for Catch Me If You Can, Robin Williams for One Hour Photo, and Maggie Smith for Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood. So like I feel like it probably means stepping away from what you usually do as a performer. Right. But like is that what Christopher Walken is doing? Is that... Kind of, because did Christopher Walken... I mean, I bet that this is just a vague category uh, that they yeah. tried to get as many people nominated for their awards to get people to show up, whatever. Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I, but did Christopher Walken ever really make people cry before Catch Me If You Can? I guess not. Maybe not, you know, with, with you know... It's the Maggie Smith one that I don't understand. Yeah, I mean, Maggie Smith is cantankerous. <laughs> Every performance she gives, I think this is very. I think the <laughs> I think maybe they mean much. the southern accent, though. Oh, honey, the only disease that could survive our bloodstream is alcoholism. <laughs> is that it? I can't tell if that's a scar or a wrinkle. Yeah, that's a wrinkle, pal. There's some scars behind your ears, though. Should have, Carol. Like, like I almost feel yeah. like this award is like the "Well, you tried it" award, and it's yeah. like, <laughs> and some of it is more successful than others. And I feel like because that's all I feel like Maggie Smith really should get for yeah yeah sisterhood is just like well you tried it and she really did i don't know, I don't know. it's weird breakaway performance robin williams was however nominated for critics choice best actor this is still early in critics choice when they still had like a veneer of respectability that they have since lost largely the eighth, because they're telling the eighth annual terrible. critics choice awards i always think that's kind of funny when you when you know we hear about like the 77th annual whatever and it's just like go back to like oh it's just the eighth year it's, we haven't even made it to <laughs> however you, you can go back and watch this because it this is still the era where they were nominating just three nominees for at least the acting categories yeah and it was a tie between Nicholson and Daniel Day-Lewis we should say Nicholson was for about Schmidt i don't think we mentioned yet um 
and they tied. So Robin Williams is like the only one of the three that doesn't get to go up there. And so Daniel Day-Lewis does a very like respectable blah, 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 whatever. Jack Nicholson, who is probably drunk or just at least having a good time, is like, I think we should invite Robin up to the stage. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't usually get this baked when it's on television. But I, I really, this is what's so great about this, because I, I was, my speech was to say, look, it is on television. Robin, would you come up and give... Would you, would you give the funniest acceptance speech I ever What gave? Jack is trying to say here... Is he so happy to be here he could drop a law? Really? <laughs> and then Robin Williams comes up and completely derails it and is so uh -huh. funny. And he's like, the critics were just like, fuck you, Robin. We wanted to say how grateful I am to the film critics for honoring Robin. Yeah, thanks for nothing. <laughs> It's a tie with three people! Yeah. That's okay, buddy. I just want to thank you. It's so nice to have nothing leaving here. I don't have to thank anybody. You, you pretty much said, fuck you, Robin. Thank you. I hope that's televised. It's wonderful. You can still watch it. You can go back and see it on YouTube. I'm looking at this list, and it's, it's an interesting sort of like liminal time for the critics choice where they are halfway between what they started at which was sort of like a very sort of like they behaved more like a critics group like a new york or los angeles critics group mm -hmm. like awarded things and now this year it's just like best digital acting performance between Gollum and dobby and yoda and it's just like just shut it like fuck you <laughs> let's it. not do this we are not the mtv movie awards right, right. may they rest in peace but they were already doing, like, we're going to nominate 10 Best Pictures to, like, better sell ourselves as a, you know, Oscar precursor kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. But they gave Charlie Kaufman Best Screenplay for Adaptation. So, in a category where they Charlie nominated him... Donald Kaufman, how dare right. you? <laughs> where they nominated him opposite Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor for About Schmidt and Nia Vardalos for My Big Fat Creek Wedding. So, hey. when are you going to see that? Yeah. Now I'm on a rabbit hole with the AARP breakaway performance category. Oh, all right, let's hear when it. Did, when did they quit that category? I don't Have know, you... but I found an AARP write-up from the 2005 awards in which every category has, like, an editor, like, gives an explanation Ooh, for their choice. let's hear it then. Winner. And for breakaway performance... I'll say they do runners up. The runners up are um, it says Tom Selleck losing the mustache and graining, gaining gravitas in Ike Countdown to D Day. What, what the fuck? <laughs> it gets better. Meryl Streep vamping to Greg Kinnear's summertime in Stuck on You. Wow. Lynn for Kinsey. What'd you say, Lynn Redgrave for Kinsey? Yes. That's a great one. That's a great monologue in that movie. That's it. That's fine. I don't I don't I don't understand how you line up 
what Lynn Redgrave does in that one scene in Kinsey doing like heartbreaking, amazing, astounding work to Meryl Streep in Stuck on You. Like, I don't know what's going on. They That's wanted wild. to award her for playing a lesbian for two minutes on screen. <laughs> She's great. No, the, apparently, the AARP movies for Grown Ups Awards were last night. We have not. I have not looked at what the winners are. Joe, have you? No. And because if anybody tries to maybe spoil you me, you will still live tweet them this year. <laughs> yeah, I want to live tweet them as unspoiled as possible. Yeah. All right. What else? I'm trying to look through my notes of like what else I have going. Oh, we haven't mentioned Michael Vartan showing Bush for like a good 20 minutes in that movie. I mean, right? It's a choice. It is a choice. See, if it was like post alias, I would be like, oh, it is a choice. But I guess <laughs> okay, I didn't say it was his choice. I said it was a filmmaking choice. To just right. be like, we're going to show as much as of Michael Vartan's pubic hair as possible in this yes. yeah, movie. Yeah, I improvised it, too, by, with, with Sai standing there being like, did I tell you to, t- to put that towel yeah, on? Yeah, right? It's just what like, before? really art directing the nudity in that. I think, yeah. all right, I think the movie does f- begin to fall apart at that moment. I don't, there's something about that scene that feels like we're leaving a lot of menace on the table. I don't know. I don't know how you guys felt about that. I didn't. It's it's not, not that effective. It feels it's not effective is one problem. It's more like icky than like you are actually terrified. Right. Um, it feels like a deviation from what the movie is promising at all turns because it feels like the movie is promising violence and not like yes. we're craving violence. You right. know, like that's not a good thing. But like it doesn't. Yeah, it feels and not like it feels like it's subverting expectations and doing something interesting. There's just a lot of unanswered questions in this movie in terms of like motivation that it saves for this like monologue at the very end that still feels like a little bit of a whiff and doesn't answer a lot of those questions anyway. That like we could maybe be a little bit more afraid of what's happening or like empathic to his psychosis if we knew anything about this character besides what we see him experience the movie Um, doesn't quite know when and how to play coy and not mm -hmm. Uh, and i think the risk of kind of pathologizing him as much as it does at the end while we do need to know something about like who he is and how he arrived at this moment in his life, doing it so directly with the story about kind of like ha- him having been sort of sexually um, taken advantage of himself yeah. and his father subjected him to kitty porn. And, and so which then kind of brings in this sort of fuzzy, like, okay, he was staging these two adults and this sort of pornographic kind of setup that didn't really, um, that, you know, had payoff and it just and it, he doesn't actually take photos of them just so it yeah, can have this right. weird right kind of gotcha moment twist that feels very early 2000s narrative to me yeah of like these twists that are like ah it makes you think yeah right. that really signify nothing that yeah. so many early 2000s movies had and I also wonder if maybe the more effective, I mean, whatever, like, backseat driver for Mark Romanek, so, like, he's doing fine. But, like, um, if it's more effective to not ever hear about Williams's 
uh, or Sai's backstory and just have it be the idea of like, we hand these people who we don't know, you know, a window into our lives on the regular, or at least we did back when we got photos developed that way. And, and we don't know anything about them. And maybe that's what's unsettling. That's what should be unsettling. It's like we're handing so much of ourselves over to people who, you know, we maybe know their first name, but like, that's the extent of it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's where the whole thing about like, make this movie less of a character study and more of a thriller becomes so wonky because I think like that exact element that you're talking about, Joe, is like a lot of what I am like fascinated by the, the idea of the movie, uh, and kind of tapping into that idea of like surveillance and consumerism, all that kind of stuff. And like these like faceless, nameless people that you interact with. It made me think a little bit of a movie that sort of existed, well, a very different genre, but actually has a sort of shares a universe, which is the cable guy, the Jim Carrey movie. Yeah. The cable guy is scarier than this movie. Yeah. 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 It it takes a different tack, but it's, it's another kind of stalker movie about somebody who comes into a very intimate part of your life being your home yeah. fixing things in the middle of the day for you and then sort of like invades your territory and your psyche in kind of a deep kind of ominous yeah. way um, and I sort of think yeah the cable guy is oddly a more effective movie than this is well and the cable guy takes that idea of needing to have a like inciting incident or a psychologically mm-hmm satisfying backstory and kind of has a joke with it, right? Where, like, Mm -hmm. he was, you know, raised with, you know, TV as his latchkey parent and yada, yada, yada. Where One Hour Photo tries to sort of tack that on as a dramatic monologue. And part of me feels like you could do One Hour Photo as that more anonymous, you know, we don't know very much about the person behind the counter movie if you don't hire a superstar like Robin Williams. I think once you hire Robin Williams, then all of a sudden it's just like, well, we have Robin Williams. We're obviously going to do more of a character study yeah. than mm-hmm. that because like why else, you know, you know, why have this great talent and not utilize it? Right. It's interesting. I thought yeah, the best part of the movie for me and I don't know if you guys feel the same way was the what turns out to be fantasy sequence of him living in the Yorkin house and the the resolution to the scene where they come home and he's sitting on the couch because again it's been a long time since I've seen that movie so I'd forgotten wh- how that turns out and I'd forgotten actually that that was a fantasy scene and the way it cuts you really do expect them to like turn the corner into the living room and him not to be there and that was going to be you were you know that the yeah. that the the film was fooling you as to how close of a call this was. Mm-hmm. And when they turn and they see him there and like on an elemental level, my heart is just like, well, fuck what's he going to do? And mm-hmm. then when they're like, you know, Oh, uncle Cy, And then you're like, Oh, right. It's a dream sequence. I thought that was incredibly effective. Yeah. That, that is the most suspenseful sequence in, in the movie. And it is like a window into sort of like the tone that this movie should like marry itself to rather than yeah. sort of like, the, yeah, there's, 
three, maybe like kind of, you know, uh, kind of wispy, like monologues at the beginning, like waxing poetic about, yes. um, you know, power of photography. And, and originally, I think Mark Romanek wanted even more. He had one about like the red eye effect in photos. And yeah, you know, I, heard, has, I read about that. Yes. Yeah, we, he has one currently about, about like, you know, this is the only opportunity that anybody gets to like freeze time. And, yeah. and so it sort of creates this kind of like gauzy, um, you know, sort of it just, it just creates this, the rest, it forces the rest of the movie to do this sort of like tone shifting thing because it mm-hmm. feels so kind of gauzy and removed from a lot of like what's happening in, t- in terms of the more like stark, like reality of the, the like present day, like, uh, you know, suspense. Yeah. I definitely think that like the, be- the movie is at its best in like the first half hour when all of this stuff is going on, that it has a little bit more like to grapple onto. Once it hits that half hour mark, it feels like it downshifts conceptually mm-hmm. in a way that's like well we have to focus on the plot but then there's also not that much plot to it yeah. but you lose all of those things that are actively creepy and like kind of make you think about this scenario in a way that like reflects your own life was it just <laughs> that me? again because of the technology advances you don't even think about now because we don't develop photos anymore right. or like, there's even a moment where she says to Robin Williams, I'm thinking of getting a digital camera. And he literally, like, reviles at it. He's like, don't, you'll, you'll put me out of business. And it's like, yeah, yeah. well, yeah. welcome to the future. Um, mm-hmm. This really is the most couldn't, this movie could never be made today thing between the the realities of photo developing and also, you know, Robin Williams no longer being with us. Like, this is, we say a lot about, like, oh, this movie couldn't be made today. Um but the ideas of surveillance are different now because all surveillance yeah. issues are online, you know? Right. Yeah. Like he would be a stranger stalking them on Facebook. Yes. Yes. Um, was I the only one who, when the, when his voiceover first starts at the very beginning of the movie, thought it reminded them of like a Netflix TV series today, something where like, I feel like something like, a like docu-series? this series. No, just like a premise like this. It feels like, you know, where you're in the perspective of this sort of, you know, unbalanced character who may or may not be, you know, bad. And it's just like, oh, I feel like this kind I of thing gets made into a like TV show you, these days. You cut a chunk out of this movie and you made a really tight hour of Pilot. great television. Yeah. Um, it, I don't know. It reminded me of like Dexter or you or something like that. Like, yeah. Where we get like narr- uh, narration from a killer or a psychopath or something like that. Yeah, somebody's like charming you, yeah. learning it with their sort of like like schmaltzy poetic like view of the world. Yeah. The other note I have down here, which is just a one-off more than anything, but when he goes to the soccer practice and ends up like walking off with the kid and like gives him the the present or whatever, that first of all, that soccer coach is mean to the kids anyway. But second of all, that he lets this kid go walk off with this guy who's literally like wearing the uniform of a child kidnapper. You know what I mean? Like, he's just between the jacket and the khaki pants and the glasses and whatever, and it's just like, you couldn't draw a more, like, stereotypical version of, like, it's essentially Stanley Tucci in The Lovely Bones is what Robin Williams is dressed as. And it's just like, I can't believe he let this kid just walk off just because the kid was just like, yeah, it's fine. And it's just like, okay, maybe, like, have a little bit more Uh of a... Of a more guardianship over your children, you a-hole. Yeah. 
Should we move on to the IMDb game? Yes, let's. Joseph, would you like to tell the listeners what the IMDb game is? Oh, I suppose I should, shouldn't I? Uh, the IMDb game, every week we end our episodes with uh, something called the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we mentioned that up front, it's only fair. After two wrong guesses, we start giving the the gears of the remaining titles that have yet to be guessed as a clue. If that is not enough, it then becomes a free-for-all of hints with the interest of getting us out of here on a timely basis. So, <laughs> Chris, yes. how are we going to do this with three of us? I think we should give the power to our guest, Matt. Would okay. you like to give or guess first? Ooh, um... Oh, let's let's get the hard part out of the way. I'll guess first. Okay. Who would you like to give to? Oh, I have to pick one of you two? Yes. Oh, man. Um, okay, I'll pick you, Chris. Okay, you're going to give to me, which means I'm going to give to Joe, which makes me very excited because I'm going to be very evil this week, and Joe is going to give to you. All right. So, okay. Joe. Yes. Who do you have for Matt to guess? Um. So, I went into the... Through Mark Romanek, I thought about Trent Reznor, and I thought about his sort of contributions to film. Obviously, he is a Oscar nominee for doing the score for The Social Network. The star of The Social Network, of course, is Jesse Eisenberg. So, mm. Matt, could you give me the known for for Jesse Eisenberg? Okay, well, I have to assume that The Social Network is one of them. Correct. Okay. Mr. Jesse Eisenberg, um, you know, he, I mean, it's hard to say because a lot of his, mm, okay, his bigger movies, I mean, must be like, um, uh, you know, the, ma uh, now you see me, the magic thing. Incorrect, but that is a very good guess. I would have guessed. Okay. How about, um, how about Zombieland then? Zombieland is correct. Yes. Okay. Okay. So I have one more guess, right? One more before you start getting hints. Um, two movies left. Well, oh, um, uh, the Batman movie that he was in. Yes, uh, Batman. I've been v stifling Superman. a laughter because <laughs> I pulled this up, and I fully forgot that he was Lex Luthor in that abomination of a yep. movie. Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice. You are correct on three. You are only missing one more. Doing very well. Zombieland and Batman v Superman. Oh. Oh, man. Um, he makes so many small movies that I assume wouldn't appear on this, but what bigger sort of things has he made? Um, oh, what about, like, um, what about um, young Jesse Eisenberg, like, uh, like Squid and the Whale? Bingo! You got it. Bingo! Well, well okay. done. Okay. Very well done. Too painful. With only one wrong guess, <laughs> Matt Jacobs. Very good. Very, very good. All right, so Joseph, yes. it's your turn. Oh, boy. Are you ready for the full uh, scale of my wrath? Oh, God. Okay, so I did not go the Mark Romanek or Roman. I'm sorry if I'm saying it wrong. Um, but uh, I went the Robin Williams route, specifically the era of the reviled Robin Williams movies <laughs> post-Oscar win, I went with his romantic interest in Patch Adams. You motherfucker. Your IMDb game challenge <laughs> is Monica Potter. I knew you were going to oh. give me Monica Potter. That's the hard one. Any television? There is no television. 
Okay. Is Patch Adams one of them? Patch Adams is one of them. All right. I'm on to you. She did one of those Alex Cross movies, I'm pretty sure, um, with with Morgan Freeman. And it wasn't, obviously, Kiss the Girls, because that was Ashley Judd. I'm vamping because I can't remember the title of this movie. <laughs> Along Came a Spider. Along Came a Spider is correct. All right. Wow. You're two for two. Can't this believe... is perhaps where things get tricky for you. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Can't believe Parenthood is not one of them. Parenthood is not on there. She's also done a lot of other TV, too. Yeah, but Parenthood's the good one. Um, Austin Eagle. Like I said, Parenthood's the good one. Um, <laughs> I like the idea that, like, between Boston Public and Boston Legal, um, that David E. Kelly was sort of building this, you know, cinematic universe. It was like the precursor to Chicago Fire, Chicago Med, Chicago whatever. Like, David E. Kelly was going to do that with Boston, even though all of his other series could have also been called Boston Legal because the practice was about a Boston law firm and Ally McBeal was also about a Boston law firm. I'm vamping very well today. Yes. Um, <laughs> I will say this is doubly evil because I know that one of these you probably haven't seen. The other one I would be willing to like bet my bank account you have seen. Is one of them Con Air? No, not Con Air. Is she even in Break Con Air? This. Yes, she is. Okay. So I was right about that, but it's not one of them. All right, give me years. Uh, you got one more. Oh, round. I do have one more. <laughs> Great. Um, I don't know. Before Monica you get Potter. Those years. She's she's the one who everybody thought looked enough like Julia Roberts that they were going to try and make a go with that, and it never worked. That's insane. I know. I know. It's just because she has that weird lip thing where she doesn't have a middle part of her lip. You know that that thing where like Julia Roberts, <laughs> Julia Roberts doesn't have that divot in the middle of her upper lip that like. Yes. Anyway, whatever. What else has she even been in? How about I throw one out to you yeah. that, like, I would have fully guessed this, and you can just say that it's your wrong okay. answer. Okay, all right. Do you remember the Freddie Prince Jr. romantic comedy Head Over Heels? I do. Is she in that? She is the prime love interest Jesus. of that movie. All right, Head Over Heels. Uh, no, God it's not it. on there. Right. Okay, so your <laughs> remaining years are 2004, 2009. I don't think that you are going to guess these movies just from that. So I'm going to say they are the same genre. 2004 and 2009. Yes. The same they are, genre. All of these movies you could consider the same genre, sort of, because Along Came a Spider is pretty scary. Oh. These two movies are horror movies, and we all know Patch Adams is a horror movie. Wait, what was the first year? 2004? 2004, 2009. Is she in Saw? She is in Saw, the okay. one that I was sure that you had seen. Your remaining title from 2009, it is a horror remake. Oh. All right. So this was 2009 is when they started remaking, like, oh, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Hills Have Eyes. Um, Hills Have Eyes. Not the Hills Have Eyes. That's a good remake. Um, but the same original director. As the Hills Have Eyes? Yes. Last House on the Left. Last Last House House she is on in Last the House left. on the Left. I've seen parts of that remake. Okay. Shit, I should have got that sooner. All right. Monica Potter. You bastard. <laughs> well done. Well done. <laughs> All right, so Matt, you've chosen one for Chris. 
Yes. Okay. I'm hoping that you guys haven't done this already. I'm going to diverge from the one hour photo discourse and um, offer up a callback to someone we mentioned earlier in this conversation who we have our fingers crossed for, and that is Jennifer Lopez. Jennifer Lopez. I am going to guess Selena. Nope. Fuck. I was equally shocked. I mean, maybe we've had Jennifer Lopez before and we've had this conversation where we're like justice for Selena being on her. We have definitely had Jennifer Lopez before, but it was a long time ago. It would have been a long time ago. And maybe we talked about this when we did An Unfinished unfinished Life. life. Right. Um, Spoiler, that's not what she's known for. (laughs) She's not known for An Unfinished Life. Um, Geely? Yes. Okay. Um... Huh. I wonder if it's been enough time for second act to show up <laughs> because uh, yeah, it's been about a year and a half since we've done this. So like we've got 2018 movies are starting to show up for people. So I am going to guess second act. Uh, no, good guess, but no. Oh, how did I get two wrong guesses on Jennifer Lopez you already? Because second act. That's your first. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. first second act has a cult following. How dare you? I haven't seen uh, it yet. Don't tell me what happens in it. You haven't Everything seen it? Everything happens oh, no. in that movie. I know. Oh. I know. I want to see. I should watch it. Like, Talk today. about a movie that leaves it all on the floor. That <laughs> yeah. movie throws everything at you. Far twistier than you think it's going to be. But that's all I'll say. Uh, <laughs> there are some some surprises. on. OK, give me give me the years. I'm giving you a year now. Okay. I, do I give you both years? Yeah. Uh, all the years for the answers that I don't have. Okay. So those are so there are three movies that you haven't guessed. They are from 2000. That's The Cell. <laughs> yes. Yes. Weird gays who love The Cell. Shout out. I can't out. believe you forgot that. <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed it on its own. Though See, I guess it did just hit like Netflix and everything. Yeah. Uh, the people were watching it. That's on here over like Wedding Planner or Made in Manhattan. And that. <laughs> right, right, uh, right. What are my remaining years? So as soon as I give you these years, you're going to know. Yeah. Um, they are both movies with uh, substantial uh, gay following <laughs> as well. <laughs> First being Two of my favorite in-theater experiences watching Jennifer Lopez movies, I'll say that. Oh, yeah, wow. Understandably. You have 2015 and 2019. Oh, wow. So it's Hustlers and The Boy Next Door. Bingo. <laughs> so glad Hustlers is already there. Like, yeah, that's, that's a, if something is going to show up this early on an, on an IMDb known for, it should be Hustlers. Uh, may you for stay everyone. forever. May you stay there forever, Hustlers. I love you. Now, Boy Next Door, Outpaced. Uh, <laughs> so many other, I mean, monsters. <laughs> Honestly, it's the Out of sight for Pete's sake. Yeah crazy in living color even like come on yeah wow fantastic great imdb game great episode matt thank you so so much for joining us um a lovely way to spend the morning before the oscar nomination i know now rest up because it's going to be uh... yeah because it's going to be a rough week yeah, yeah. um we will have much to discuss in the days to come we absolutely will. Um, and that's our episode. If you want more This Head Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at head underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Matt, where can the listeners find more of you? Uh, you can read my work on an ongoing basis at HuffPost, and you can follow me on Twitter at Terrence Allegro. 
Jessica, which is spelled like it sounds, though it's probably easier to just search for me by name, Matt Jacobs. <laughs> and Joe, where can the listeners find more of you and your work? Sure. I am on uh, Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. I'm on Letterboxd uh, as Joe Reed. Reed is also spelled R-E-I-D. I'm on Primetimer. Um, I'm managing editor there, and I also do a decent bit of writing about television there. And for the next few weeks... I will be at Gold Rush on uh, Vulture talking about award season, so it should be fun. Yeah, you Fantastic. Such good Vulture stuff this, these past couple weeks. Oh, thank you. Oh. Thank you. An Oscar lead up. And then I am Chris File. You can find me on Twitter at Chris B. File. That's F-E-I-L. Also on Letterboxd under the same name and writing regularly for the film experience. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mebius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility, so please plaster the wall of our podcast page with photos of your favorite episodes, but don't get too stalkery. That's all for this week, and we hope you'll be back next week for more Buzz. Buzz.